Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all of the Just the News podcasts with a lot of original reporting and reflections. You can go to justthenews.com to see the list of them on the homepage, and you can listen to them wherever you like to listen to podcasts. A reminder that it's time to pre-order my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. It's on point with everything that's happening to the news today. Speaking of which, in today's podcast, my list of shockingly slanted media coverage in these final days before the 2020 election. I would say that I'm getting the same feeling now in these final days before the 2020 election as I had in 2016 when it comes to how the media was choosing to cover stories in many instances. Of course, it was fairly new in 2016, the lengths to which some of the media were going to skew their coverage and try to shape opinion and manipulate it rather than simply report the facts that were happening in an accurate way. Now it's starting to feel a little like old hand. Only I guess the public is supposed to think that it never happened before or that there's nothing amiss or that all the reporting in 2016 turned out to be right. Maybe that's what we're supposed to think when we actually know better. So coming into the 2020 vote, as if no mistakes had ever happened in the past, as if the skewed reporting and the slanted bias were not evidence over the past four years, here we're seeing it again. And today I decided to encapsulate and discuss some of the best examples, or let's say worst examples, of slanted media coverage in these final days before the vote. The first one that I want to talk about is the coverage, or really lack of coverage, of big tech censorship, particularly when it comes to the New York Post expose in recent days of alleged conflicts of interest involving Joe Biden, his son Hunter, and actually other Biden relatives, foreign business people and officials, and millions and millions, if not billions of dollars that are involved in all of this. The censorship by big tech, and I'll go over this briefly if you're not familiar with it, but the censorship is really a stunning move in our society that much of the media is ignoring. It's a big story. In fact, some of the media are actually cheering it on purely because they come at this from an ideological and conflicted standpoint. What happened was the New York Post published an expose on the Bidens and these alleged conflicts of interest. And I will say this didn't come out of the blue although they had some documentation that they were relying on. These things had been previously reported, including by many left-leaning publications in the past couple of years. And there had been a report put out in the last few weeks by a Senate committee, the Senate Homeland Security Committee, that outlined many of these same conflicts without the detailed proof from the emails. And as it turns out, by the way, the FBI, according to the Senate Homeland Security Committee, the FBI has been withholding information that the committee has requested about the Bidens, and the Secret Service has provided conflicting information to the committee when they've asked for it regarding this topic. You can read about some of that if you peruse CherylAckeson.com. But my point is, this isn't out of the blue, the notion that the Bidens have had these contacts and alleged conflicts of interest with foreign governments and foreign business people being paid a lot of money 
And this includes really a circle of people surrounding Hunter Biden, including other business people. Some of them are in prison for other things. Some of them are said to be talking to reporters. But in any event, this isn't a story that came out of the blue that had hallmarks of fabrication on it, as the Trump-Russia collusion story did, by the way, back starting in 2016. But when the New York Post published this material, it really took off in a way that it had not before, that it had not taken off when left-leaning publications investigated it, that had not taken off when congressional committees had released reports about it, or even the inspector general had touched upon it. So this started to circulate pretty quickly. And as you may know, Twitter took fairly quick action to make sure the New York Post could not circulate this. Other people could not share the tweet and, in fact, locked the account of the New York Post until they agreed to delete a perfectly legitimate news story. And I know some people out there are saying they want their news curated. They like the fact that third parties, whether they're journalism groups or news media or big tech companies, they like the fact that their news and information is being curated for them or censored, as I say. But I think, if you read my past books, this is all about special interests cleverly creating a market for us to believe we want our news and information curated so that they could do it and shape the material online that they were previously unable to shape in this, as some say, wild, wild west media environment that some don't like. If you're in the business of controlling and shaping public opinion, and you've had pretty good success at that over the years, as described in my book, The Smear, this industry is dissected in detail, but then you see that on the internet, there is very much a lack of control over information that the public can see. So how do you exert control? You create an environment in which you convince the public that somebody needs to step in and curate or fact check or censor their information so that they dare not see things that someone deems harmful or untrue. That's where we are today. And then we get to the point where in the days before the election, not only are these secretive algorithms being used by the big tech companies to shape what we can see, but they're just blatantly putting their thumb on a scale in a very overt way, which kind of reeks to me of a bit of desperation that they don't even care that much that they're getting this level of criticism for their censorship and inappropriate actions. They don't care very much that Congress is calling them in to testify to what they're doing, because that will all happen after the election. They seem to be really motivated, highly motivated in these final days to control what could be damaging material about the candidate on the Democrat side any way they can and whatever it takes. In fact, in a few weeks on my Sunday TV show, Full Measure, I'm going to be digging into big tech censorship, how all of this works, with the help of insiders who have blown the whistle because they were part of it. They've been able to witness and describe the methods used that are unseen to us to make sure that information is unavailable to us if certain interests don't want us to see it. And it's pretty shocking. I think it's One of the biggest dangers we're talking about in our society today, the control of information online. So back to the New York Post story about Hunter Biden, this big tech censorship should be a huge story on everybody's front page in a critical sense, at least a dual-sided sense, if you're concerned about free and open information in our society. But it's certainly not being given that sort of coverage by most in the media. 
In fact, as I mentioned, some of them are even cheering on this notion that Twitter, days later, is still locking up the New York Post account unless they delete their perfectly legitimate news story. The second slanted coverage example that I'd like to mention is related. It has to do not with the fact that the media is not covering big tech censorship appropriately, in my view, but it's also that they're not covering the Biden story itself the same way they covered, for example, the Trump-Russia collusion story that proved to be false. And there is much more evidence and documentary evidence and people on the record with the Biden story. There's much more from an objective standpoint than there ever was with the Trump-Russia collusion story. And yet you see the media treating the Biden story as if it's without evidence and unverified instead of trying to verify it. They're just simply stating that it's evidence-free. I've heard people say it's been debunked, which it hasn't, but they're passing that around. Much of the evidence is now on the record and available if you know where to look. Whereas the false Trump-Russia information was reported for years uncritically by much of the media, without the media noting at the same time that that was quite literally without evidence. And then rarely noting in the Trump-Russia collusion story how much of it turned out to be false, even as that was discovered after the fact. The media stuck with the narrative, failed to apologize, often failed to correct, and then along comes a story that is much more significant in terms of the documentation that we know that we, we already have, and the media treats it entirely differently as if there's nothing to see. So that is a true example of slanted coverage. And again, this is something I dive into at length in my new book, Slanted, which I hope you will pre-order. It's on point with everything that we're talking about today, what's happening with the news. A third way that uh, we're looking at slanted coverage in these final days before the 2020 vote, the invisibility of Joe Biden and how that's being covered. I've tried to watch most of the appearances by both of the candidates, Biden and Trump, and I did the same thing in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, Trump, and also Sanders for a time. Biden's appearances are few and far between. He does get out. He's simply not staying in the basement all the time, as maybe some of the press says. But his appearances are small, relatively brief. He doesn't take questions by and large. He may take a few from time to time. And even when his running mate, Kamala Harris, comes in for a speech, it seems like from what I can see when I look at the videos, she's rushing in almost as if she doesn't want reporters to even see her face, avoids questions, and then you contrast this with President Trump's availability to the public and to the press, which I believe, I won't state unequivocally because I don't know scientifically how to measure it, but I believe Trump's availability to the public and the press is probably the most of any president in our lifetime, if not in history. It's pretty amazing how many times he talks to the media, coming and going wherever he goes, sits down for interviews even with most of the media who are hostile to him. So you contrast that with sort of the invisibility of Joe Biden, particularly in the final days of the campaign. And that may be unprecedented to have one of the two major candidates, to have one of the nominees for the highest office disappear for days and announce that they're not going to make any appearances and take no questions from reporters. Now, many in the media are oddly uncurious about it. But let's play the substitution game as I talk about in my last book, The Smear, 
and I have more examples in Slanted, if you were to substitute Biden's behavior and Trump's behavior, if Trump were to have announced for four days before this debate in the final days of the campaign, he was going to be holed up in the White House, not take questions from reporters, not make any appearances, certainly the press would be reporting all kinds of conspiracies and bad information and demanding to know more. Now, I will say, as president of the United States, there, there would be more questions to ask if the president disappeared. But I still think when the man who wants to be president is the Democrat's choice for it, disappears like this, it's so unusual and so odd that there is much more reporting to be done and the coverage has been slanted. The next example I'd like to discuss is the irresponsible coverage of coronavirus and masks when it comes to Trump and the Biden campaign. You know, when Trump got coronavirus, he was widely blamed as if the media could know the moment that he got it. And it happened to be a moment the media presumes that he wasn't wearing a mask. And if only he'd been wearing a mask, the media presumes or implies he wouldn't have gotten coronavirus. So therefore, it's his fault. It's a reflection on his policies. And actually, I think when you think about it, you know, if you're listening to this, that there's scientifically no way to know at what moment somebody, including the president, got coronavirus or even at what event, although they're widely calling the Rose Garden event for the Supreme Court nominee a super spreader event, and yet there's no way to actually know when and where people got coronavirus at what moment and whether they were wearing masks at the moment or not. But the media treats these assumptions as a fact with no context or scientific counterpoints. It's perfectly fair to raise the question, but certainly there are many opposing scientific views on all of this. There is science peer-reviewed and published on both sides of the mask issue. There have been numerous accounts of how in New York City, for example, most of those hospitalized at one point with coronavirus, according to the governor, were those who had self-isolated at home. And there were other stats showing that many who've gotten coronavirus reported wearing masks properly at all the recommended times. So this is something that has two sides if you're going to cover it and to treat it as the media has, as if they know the answers to all of these questions, at least when it comes to President Trump and those surrounding him, it's unfair and it's inaccurate. And then let's look at what happened when some close to Kamala Harris got coronavirus or tested positive. I didn't see those same accusations about, well, why weren't they wearing masks? Obviously, they weren't wearing masks. Or questions about if they were wearing masks, pointing out why did they get it if the, if the idea is and was with President Trump that mask wearing definitively prevents it, then why when those close to Kamala Harris got it, there wasn't this question of when and where they were wearing masks and the criticism if they weren't or the questions about how they got it if they were. Maybe I missed it, but I didn't see any such coverage in the news when that happened. It was quite quiet, in fact, only when it's Trump or those associated with him. More examples of how the media is revealing its slant in the worst possible way after a short break. We're back and we are talking about slanted coverage by the media in these final days before the election. 
The fifth example that I'd like to talk about is the poor coverage of polls. And some of you know that I've done entire podcasts about this sort of thing. I've written about it, how the coverage of the polls and the use of the polls by the media is inappropriate and often inaccurate. In these last days before the vote, there is a lot of reporting on polls, but without any context of how some of the very same polls by the same institutions, how wrong they were at this point in 2016 when it came to picking the ultimate winner. And there is usually, at least I've never seen, any context regarding how the pollsters, if we are to believe the polls this time, have changed their methodology or how the news organizations who commission the polls have changed the way they report on them so that they are supposedly and hopefully more accurate and in better context. And yet I don't see people asking the question. I don't see context given. I don't see the comparisons provided to the 2016 polls so that the public at least has a barometer by which to kind of measure what they're hearing now compared to what happened in 2016. I think that qualifies as self-serving and slanted coverage under which the media continues to use their polls to try to sway public opinion rather than simply measure the public sentiment at a given point in time. And the final example that I want to talk about of what I think is slanted news coverage, blatantly slanted news coverage, is the reporting about mail-in ballots and potential fraud. This story has been skewed from the start. First, many in the media insisted in advance that the notion there would be any fraud or widespread fraud with the 2020 vote regarding mail-in ballots, they were insisting that that's a lie on Trump's part, as if they could tell the future. It was the strangest thing to read fact-checkers in the media say that Trump's claim there could be widespread fraud or would be widespread fraud was a lie when the future hasn't even happened yet. They may disagree with his opinion or prediction, but they certainly cannot accurately declare it to be a lie for somebody to say or predict that in the future there will be fraud. And then, as you've seen, there has been a lot of fraud already reported and documented. There have been videos, there have been local news reports, and there have been national news reports. But when that happens, some of the same in the media who said that there would not be fraud now make the accounts of fraud lean in one direction, as if the fraud being discovered is only that which is committed on behalf of Republicans or by Republicans. It seems like there's almost no way to simply get down the middle fair reporting on this topic that has a lot of importance to it. I mean, think about what's at stake. This is going to be, I guess, the first election decided in such large part by people who are voting in advance, by mail, by absentee, And that can make the difference in elections in our country that have been so close. Doesn't that deserve a great deal of scrutiny and not just one-sided scrutiny? Isn't it a fair question to ask and something that reporters should really be digging deeply into, not in a slanted way? I think with these few salient examples I've given today, it's easy to see how the news has in many ways devolved into little more than a propaganda tool used to try to shape opinion, and never more so for some reason than when it comes to President Trump. This really escalated in 2016 and shows no sign of having changed here in 2020. Objectivity 
ethics, journalism standards and practices, they've neatly been tossed out of the window. And as I write in my book, Slanted, is actually being cheered on in the most stunning way possible, at least to me, by journalism colleges in some cases, by some journalism professors, journalism watchdogs, nonprofits. They're all aboard the train that's driving us to what I think is a dangerous place where the information we get is so shaped and manipulated that I'm afraid if we don't change course soon, we won't know what to believe and we won't have a way to find out the truth on our own because the control over our information on the news and online will be so complete. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and I hope you check out justthenews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Atkinson podcast and also my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all of the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. This is a great time to pre-order Slanted, my new book. It's subtitled, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. I like to call it The Death of the News as We Once Knew It. Was it murder or suicide? By that, I mean I examine the question about whether the devolution of the news and the public's lack in confidence in us is somebody else's fault, such as President Trump's, or is it our own? You'll be surprised at what other journalists are saying, what top executives in the news industry told me in the book. And you can pre-order this anywhere or visit the Slanted tab at CherylAckeson.com to find out how to get a signed copy or a free signed book plate. It's a great holiday gift since it's coming out November 24th. Please consider getting it for yourself or for someone who cares about what's happening to the news and in terms of censorship online. It explains what's really behind all of this with an investigative and deep dive approach. There's an entire chapter on the devolution of CNN, where I used to work when it was a news organization, and on the devolution of the New York Times. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.